It's so freaking hot. All right. Sorry. I'm fading. Let's go. I have so much farther to go. I'm also real hungry. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. Why didn't you eat before you... I did. I just didn't have dinner. Well, why didn't you have dinner before we did it? Because I was typing up my notes. <laughs> well, maybe you should... I don't know, Sam. <laughs> Plan better? Yeah. Thanks, Danielle. I, I figured that I part out myself. I nice. I know you've been busy. <laughs> it's been a struggle. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. I definitely don't know what you're talking about. Except, Danielle, you probably do. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) I don't don't remember any of it. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's let's speak behind the curtain because today we're continuing our series of the Hyperion Cantos with book three, Endymion. Part two. Yay! Now, to be fair to you, Danielle, it has been a while since we recorded our previous episode. It's been like six weeks and you wouldn't let me listen to the edited version. (laughs) I didn't say you couldn't. I said it was up to you and you made that decision yourself. But it's better if I don't remember what happened. (laughs) Yeah, so don't try to blame that on me because I agree with you. It's better. But, you know, that that wasn't a unilateral decision here. Yeah, so feel free to email Sam if that episode was terrible, everybody. It's not my fault. (laughs) Oh, great. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. I appreciate all the help and support after all these years. <laughs> All right. Well, my sympathy for you has dwindled precipitously, and now I want you to summarize the last episode, and I'm not feeling bad about it. Uh, okay. Endymion by... Endymion. By Simmons. Really? Dan, Dan Simmons, Simmons, yes. <laughs> it is about a guy named Endymion in Good a job. city called Endymion. Yep. Right. Good. And it's Perfect. post... Post uh, disaster Hyperion, so they're like rural. Eh, that's all I got. Sure. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's Can all you even give me a time frame for how long after the fall this is? Five hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you were so confident, <laughs> and they're so wrong. I have no idea. I was totally just making up a number. It's like two hundred and seventy years. Oh, that was pretty close. No, it wasn't. You were twice as far <laughs> off as the actual number. I thought it was much farther, so I thought that was pretty good. So, two hundred seventy years <laughs> after the fall of Hyperion, we've got Endymion, and uh, like there's been a rise in Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Again, fictional Catholicism and the creepy um, starfish things. The cruciform, Danielle? Yeah, the cruciform. Starfish. In my, in my head, they always, they look like like the crosses, but they're like squishy like starfish in my head. Have you ever been to like an aquarium touch tank and pet a starfish? They're not I, squishy. They're like rough and kind of weirdly meaty textured. I've picked up starfish not at aquariums, so yes. I'm just saying, Danielle, they're not like, oh, I wouldn't call this thing like a stress ball squishy. No, I don't mean it's like stress ball squishy. I mean, they're kind of like meaty and rough textured. Yeah, okay. Delicious. That's what I think that they are like. Cruciforms. Fair enough. All right, great. The starfish. Yeah, the starfish. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't come up with cruciforms fast enough. Um, So they're like a whole group of people now. That's what they do for resurrection is they use the cruciforms. Oh, that's starfish what the cruciforms, cruciforms do. Yeah, but they're like, that's their whole religion thing. That's how they do the resurrection part of the religion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the, the you remember the name of the church's military arm? No. The PAX. Sure. P-A-X, for all you people who need it spelled out for you. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, <laughs> that's all I remember. Oh, boy. So do you remember anything about Endymion or who he is or how he started out? Nope. Do you remember the framing device where he's in a Schrodinger cat box style execution chamber that's overly complicated? Uh, and he's floating in space or something? Yeah. Yeah, so that what Sam just said. <laughs> Great, perfect. But I don't remember why if we found out. We, we don't know why, he just is. Okay. Well, he's there. He's writing this all down. This is all apparently being told by him. He may or may not be dead at any given moment. Exactly. Uh, wow, I, I've never had this little <laughs> recollection from me before. I'm a little so flummoxed. so long ago. That's <laughs> literally over a month ago. All right. There was, you remember that he bounced around a couple of odd jobs before leading a duck hunting expedition? 
No? None of that rings a bell? I mean, yeah, it rings a bell. I just don't remember. He was, he took people out on... Didn't somebody try to kill him in a boat or something? <laughs> right. So he took some people duck hunting. They were, you know, rich idiots. And they were incompetent. And they almost killed him. And they did kill his dog. The dog. That's right. Huh. Yeah. Really? And then he, like, beat one of them senseless. And then later that night when they got back to the lodge, the that guy got drunk and tried to kill him. So he killed him first. Uh-huh. And then... I don't know, Sam. I genuinely don't know. <laughs> this is impressive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's as bad as that one that I also did not know. <laughs> there was a sham trial and he was scheduled to be executed again. That didn't happen. In an overly complicated fashion again because it's funny. And then he ended up in space. The end. No, not no, at all. This is a, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Remember where he was taken after he was supposedly executed, but was only rendered unconscious? Uh, to the church? <laughs> no. the church play into this? They're the government, Danielle. <laughs> uh, okay, no, I don't remember where he's taken. He's, he's taken to Endymion. Oh, well, that makes sense. Come on! <laughs> I thought it was like a location. I mean, that's kind of a location, but it's a bigger location than I was imagining in my head. Do you remember who he meets there? Almost. Almost. Somebody important. Somebody important. <laughs> Yeah, somebody you definitely should know. Um, the Pope? Mina Gladstone. The one of the Pope. people. The, the consul? <laughs> like one of the people in the old one? <laughs> Sorry. This is remarkable. No, it's Martin <laughs> Salinas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who else, Daniel? I don't know. I forgot who lived and who died. <laughs> it was the so one long person who's been like living forever since Earth. It was destroyed. He meets with him. Who else is there with Martin? Do you remember? No. Everyone's favorite android? A. Betic? Wait, is that the one of the yeah. yeah. Oh, hey, I remembered something. Kind of. to I me. Mean, <laughs> it was spoon fed to you, I suppose. That's a good name to remember, though. Good job, me. <laughs> okay, yeah. Real, real earned pat on the back there, Danielle. <laughs> it's a big like job. was a main character. <laughs> oh, he is now, Danielle. <laughs> Do you remember why Martin saved his life? No. Am I going to have to retell that whole episode again? No, just recap it shortly, Sam. <laughs> he wants him to save Ania. Oh, sure. Know who Ania is? No, I don't remember. Bronze daughter? The new messiah? Oh, yeah, sort of. Man. <laughs> I didn't listen to you at all. You did not. You were. I, I said to you earlier, you were basically <laughs> checked out that entire episode. <laughs> I don't recall. I'm sure when I listen to it, it'll all come back to me. Probably. Maybe I should have let you listen to it. Maybe I should have <laughs> insisted you listen to it so that you would have had some semblance of the I warned you, I didn't here. remember it, and I probably would remember not that much between early this week and late this week when we recorded. Very impressive stuff. All right. So, Ania right. Ania the Messiah. Where, do you remember where she is? In a tomb. Yeah. Okay. Which one? Sphinx. Yeah. Time. The only oh. one you can remember. You know, there's like the time... There's the Sphinx and the Time Tomb and the Jade Tomb and the King Tut's Tomb. I don't know. <laughs> you got two of them, actually. Pretty good. Well done. So she is scheduled to emerge from the Sphinx because she entered it when she was 12 or 11 or 12 or whatever, like on her 12th birthday or something, and is scheduled to emerge from it in like a few days, like 48 hours, because they know the exact time when she will come out. Perfect. And she's going to save them? What, what she, what, does she have a purpose yet? Do we remember? Uh... I don't know if her purpose is to find. Do you know why it's difficult to go get her? Because she's in a time tomb? No, when she comes out of the time tomb. You asked me the question earlier, what's the church have to do with all of this? Well, here it is. Uh-huh. The church wants her? Yeah. Well, of course they'd want the Messiah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they don't think she's the Messiah as a, as a, as a quick clue there, Daniel. <laughs> they think they already have their Messiah, frankly. So the church, so he's in a race against the church. To get to oh, they're, right. they're already there. They're like waiting for her with Swiss guards and like a whole battalion of troops well, and spaceships. One of them's going to win out. You would hope. <laughs> or she'll die. The yeah, end. Yeah, the end. All right. I should also mention that the console spaceship is also hidden in the city and Endymion, Rawl Endymion, stumbles across it. Do you know the console plays into it somehow? Mm, mm, kinda. <laughs> Also, the ship has amnesia, just for funsies. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because the, whatever, the consciousness of what's-his-face, of one of the Keats went in. Yeah, well, that that happened. That's not why the ship has amnesia. It has amnesia for different reasons. No, but that's that's what's in the ship. Yes, correct. 
All right. There's some other main characters introduced this last episode. Do you remember who the PAX person is that was introduced? No. Do you remember Father Captain Federico de Soya? No. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. All right. This is just me telling the same story twice these last two episodes. Already, just feel free to listen to that first episode, except I also need reminders so I can follow the second episode. So, sorry. This is mostly for you, Daniel. (laughs) No, uh, DeSoya was the captain of a fleet that was attacking the Ousters because they're still an enemy of the Pact for some reason when he is summoned to return to Patchum using one of their special arc angel ships, mm-hmm. right? That are those super fast ones that kill you whenever you use them. So you have to be resurrected after every use because they go so fast like a secret weapon. Uh, yeah, I remember. No, I don't think you do, but here we go. Well, you said that and then I remembered. That, that's not how the memory works, Danielle. Well, I you can remember after somebody you tells you me. it. <laughs> I remember the thing you told me when you just told me. <laughs> I recall you telling me that previously. All right, I think that's most of what you need to know at this point, Danielle. What we can take from there. Perfect. That was easy. Was it? It was easy <laughs> for you because you did nothing. I did the most of it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see how the next time goes as we get back into Endymion Part 2. Yay. Endymion's an Endymion. There's a, this is going to be a significantly larger episode, Danielle, so good luck. All right, I'm ready. I'll pay more attention this time. (laughs) Spoiler, I will not. (laughs) Absolutely not. Hopefully we'll get back to the next recording before too long as well. (laughs) Yeah, this one was delayed, so not entirely my fault. Not entirely, but, you know, it's still impressive nonetheless. So we start back in the city of Endymion with the man Endymion. Rawl is back in his room after visiting the ship and playing the piano because, you remember, he likes to play the piano. Who doesn't? Because yeah, we need a piano player in every book. Uh, we need multiple, apparently. <laughs> Rawl is back in his room when Abetic joins him just to chat. Just to note that Abetic is like very differential to humans. Like this is commenting on how he's always like serving them. And while he's mostly all organic, he's not an android in the sense of like data from Star Trek. He is flesh and blood with some enhancements, some prosthetic enhancements, but he is not like a machine. Got it. But he was still designed to serve people, and so he, like, gained satisfaction from that work. So, not slavery, he wants to serve, which <laughs> feels gross. Always. Yeah. Oh, so, Dan Simmons. <laughs> yeah, I just gotta make that point. The book goes to great lengths to express how much Abetic likes to serve. Anyway, Rawl asks him about the race of androids, as, as Betik describes it. And Abetic explains that he's over 694 years old. He's blue because he was designed not to resemble any other existing human race, because there was no known human race that was blue at the point when he was designed. And he's also engineered with, like, a constant pulsing treatment, like, in his cells. So he can't die from old age. Well, that's handy. I won't go into his entire backstory because it's mostly just what we learned from the first book. But suffice to say, we heard about everything that matters in book one of Hyperion. So go back and listen to that episode. Rawl then invites Apetic to accompany him on his mission. And Apetic is like, sure, I'd love to do that. Who's Rawl? Endymion. Oh, his first name's Rawl? Rawl, like Paul Rawl, with an R. Rawl, Rawl, Endymion. Yeah, Rawl Endymion. Okay, cool. <laughs> Good, good. I'm so glad the main character are being remembered so well. I only called him. In- I said his- it was Endymion Endymion. I did remember that. <laughs> Thank Endymion you very much. Endymion, like Mario Mario and Luigi Mario, right? Endymion in Endymion. Oh, okay. <laughs> So then Rawl is called to dinner with Martin, who looks much better than we first saw him. Apparently, he was just out of cryostasis then, so he wasn't looking so hot, but he sort of cleaned himself up. Is he ever going to die? I mean, maybe. Can you live forever in this reality? With the cruciform, apparently you can. Does he have? Does Martin have a cruciform? No, he's been using pulse and treatments and cryostasis. Right, that's why I was wondering if he could live forever that way. I don't know if it's forever, because it doesn't seem like he's doing so hot. I mean, I suppose okay. you could cryo-freeze yourself forever. Not much living in that, is there? No. So Martin reminisces about first hearing of the pack shortly after Aenea disappeared, and Rawl finds it hard to imagine a universe without them, since they were well-established by the time he was born. To Martin, the pack itself, a theocracy, was all but un thinkable in the largely secular hegemony where people tried out different religions mostly as a hobby. Remind me, Ania, when she left, was that like willingly? How did that work? She's yeah. Walk into the tombs for kicks, just wanted to. We'll get Why? into that. Okay. We don't know that yet. We don't know like her rationale, just that she did. Okay. 
Perfect. So Martin then interrogates Rall a bit on why he didn't accept eternal life and the cruciform. He's like, hey, it's a pretty good deal, right? So why didn't you take it? Does Endymion have a cruciform? No. Okay. Rall does not. <laughs> Do you want me to call him that instead of Endymion? No, I'm just reinforcing the fact that that's his name, Danielle, in case you forget again. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that when you said Rall, it was the same person I was thinking of in my head. <laughs> the same person. So Roll then suspects Martin had engineered his execution earlier to test whether or not he would actually take the parasite to be like, let him face death and the only salvation is the parasite and see whether or not he'll do it. Mm-hmm. Rawl's like, I guess I passed the test. Good choice, sir. Rawl finds it difficult to explain his suspicion of the church, partly due to his nomadic upbringing. He's like, yeah, we always sort of lived as free spirits. Still, he admits allegiance to the church and a tithing of every 10th year of service is a pretty reasonable deal for immortality, right? Yeah. Sort of. The cruciforms creep me out, so... Yeah, they creep it out, but that's not, like, the point. <laughs> Assuming <laughs> you are not you, Danielle. Most people would find that a pretty fair deal. Well, no, I'm not against forever life, I guess. I just... they, I, I don't know. I don't know how much they know in that reality versus everything we know about them from past stuff. Well, they know the cantos from the way Martin wrote it, but I don't know how much that, like, gets into it. Right. So Rawl finally states, My life is important to me. I want to keep it mine. And while I may not have covered it in entirely like that's fine but this whole section has like a whiff of libertarianism about it Uh (laughs) which is kind of like oh okay we're getting all kinds of weird stuff i guess in this episode (laughs) he loves to explore things mr simmons he does he's very exploratory i guess (laughs) the talk turns to if roll will actually accept the mission to rescue a knee and he's all like why should i i could just survive my own in the wild and then make my way back to my nomadic family and just avoid the packs i'm fine and martin says you'll do it because you want to be a hero what? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Is he like foretold? Why Why this guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I should point out that during this conversation, Martin seems like read Rawl's thoughts and Rawl attributes this to either very good guessing or Martin having lived long enough to be very good at reading people to the point of like almost being telepathic. Like he can read people's expressions so well. I mean, I feel like there's probably a limit to that, but if you were around long enough, you probably would be pretty decent at reading people exactly and of course martin's a poet a studier of the human condition so <laughs> blah, blah blah okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so roland says no he doesn't want to be a hero but martin doesn't buy that and then asks about where roll gets his haircut oh you know over on six and pine street <laughs> oh you're gonna love this uh, he mentions the place that he gets his he gets his haircut and apparently where he gets his haircut or at least used to when he was getting haircuts in the city is at a barbershop run by the great grandson of the person Martin would go to. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not? So Martin admits there's no point to this conversation. He just <laughs> is amused by thinking about heroes doing mundane things like getting their hair cut. Is he a hero? He seems like just an ordinary guy. Martin is convinced, like, he's like, oh, you want to be a hero, but not like your, your average hero, but like a hero that impacts destiny in a way, like is, is written to the annals of human history. I mean, to be fair, Martin was like a little prophetic in his cantos, so maybe you would just believe everything he says. Yeah, of course. Who knows? Raw does not believe anything Martin is saying. He's like, this guy's old and crazy. <laughs> That's totally fair and probably yeah. true. <laughs> so Martin then drops the bomb that he not only wants Rawl to rescue Aenea, he wants her to find old Earth and take her there. And Rawl thinks, okay, this guy's deluded, but I'll humor him. And is all like, yeah, sure, I can just find old Earth. No problem. <laughs> Don't they know where it is yet? I thought they no. like... No, I mean, they think <sighs> old Earth is somewhere like the Hercules cluster or wherever, but that is impossible to get to because they don't have the Farcasters. And even if they did the Farcasters, nothing ever went that far. Oh, that's right. Forgot Farcasters disappeared. Yep. And then Martin says, oh, also, find the Technocore and determine what they're up to as well. Oh, and then also find the Ousters and see if they can offer me true mortality. Oh, and then also destroy the packs and topple the church. So all of this for our little Raul Endymion. Raul is all like, after every proclamation, it's like, yes, sure, I'll just topple the church, no problem. Oh, yeah, I'll just destroy the packs. Yeah, I'll just find the Ousters. Great. Yeah, totally reasonable. It's like totally sarcastic and not buying into it. And uh, Martin is just ignoring him and just goes on. Okay. Usually in a book, I would say, well, obviously he's the main character and he's going to do all those things, except that Dan Simmons does this weird thing where he like doesn't do anything you expect him to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> God only knows. <laughs> so the last request Martin has that he, quote, stop the Shrike from hurting Aenea or wiping out humanity. Is the Shrike still around? <laughs> well, well Raw is all like, hold up. Even if the Shrike was real, because it's just the legend. Don't they know anything from the past? 
So in your own cantos, in your own story, like it's it's all mythology at this point, Danielle, because it was hundreds of years ago. But they still have a guy that was there for it. Just one, Martin. Like, <laughs> and he has been MIA in cryostasis for 200 years or whatever. Okay, right? He's not okay. been like walking around going, hey, everybody, it's me, Martin. Everything's real in my cantos. But so many people were affected by the strike back in the day. You'd think that like that yeah. would be a thing people You know how humans and legends go. Plus, there's a lot of chaos after the fall and a lot of sure. death and a I'm lot of loss to, of records. I'm willing to go with it. I just think it's school sketchy. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, Danielle, that the humans didn't keep good enough records during the chaotic collapse of their civilization. <laughs> all right, carry on. So Rawls all like, hold up. Even if the Shrike were real, in your own story, in your own cantos, Colonel Kassad killed the Shrike, like, defeated him in battle, and was like entombed for it. Like, it's all done. He's done. And Martin responds, but that is then, millennia from now. I want you to stop the Shrike now. And this is why time travel is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> You wonder why I don't remember these books. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't wonder why I don't remember these books. I, I wonder why I don't remember like anything, like literally <laughs> nothing about them. I remember the strike, the church, the curse of arms. Give me credit. All right, I'll give you like partial credit for that. <laughs> Raw just thinks, why argue? And accepts on the condition that Apex can go with them. To which Martin grumpily agrees. I can't help think like if Raw. It's really like, this guy's crazy. Why does he actually accept this whole crazy mission? I have no idea. Or why not just say, yep, yep, I'm going to do that, and then just disappear? Yeah, right. But no, he's on board. Like, everything you're saying is crazy. I am in. <laughs> Maybe that's just his personality. He's like, eh, sounds fun. I think he's just actually, like, wants to be a hero. Like, Martin got him pegged dead to rights, you know? <laughs> so we cut to Father DeSoya. Fresh off his resurrection on Patchum after translating there in his Archangel ship. Apparently being freshly resurrected fills you with a sense of wonder and makes you extremely sensitive. So that DeSoy is just openly weeping during the mass he attends, escorted by a few church bigwigs. Like emotionally sensitive? Yeah, like, oh, everything's so beautiful. Sunlight and the song and the, and the Eucharist tastes amazing. I wonder which, how many know. people have sex immediately after being resurrected. <laughs> well, considering this is a Catholic church, probably not many. I bet lots of them do, Sam. I mean, considering it's the Catholic honest. Church, probably, yeah. <laughs> so during the Mass, the Soya Think exposits a bit about Pope Julius XIV, who was leading the service. So although the Pope looks to be in his 60s, he's been Pope for over 250 years, this being his eighth reincarnation. That seems like a bad idea, somehow. Somehow, like, you don't want a, an eternal Pope? <laughs> well, I don't want an eternal anything. Like, like can you imagine eternal presidents or politicians? Yeah. Or it's oh. the same thing, but with Catholicism. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The Pope is infallible and divinely appointed. There's nothing wrong with this. I know there's nothing wrong with it in the eyes of religion. I'm just saying it's probably a terrible idea. <laughs> and again, this is strictly for the fictional Catholic Church we're talking about. Don't at me. <laughs> yeah, don't at us about our beliefs about Catholicism. Fake Catholicism, not the real Catholicism. Anyway, this Pope had started out as Pope Teller I, the so-called anti-Pope. But when he died and was resurrected as Julius Fourteenth, So remember who Teller was originally? No. It was DeRay, Father DeRay. Remember how he got appointed Pope at the end of the last- Yeah, the, I remember he was Pope. So this was Pope Tellard, who was like now considered the anti-Pope, so he done got, you know, excommunicated or whatever. Oh, okay. And now it's Pope Julius the Fourteenth. Who do you think that is? What's his face? Yeah, what's his face? The one that wasn't DeRay? <laughs> yes, the other one. <laughs> you got a name? Um... It's Hoyt, Danielle. Uh, it's Hoyt. Hoyt. Uh, uh... <laughs> he wasn't in that last book. <laughs> He was, kind of. He, he died rather sort late of, in it. And then, yeah, yeah, like... He died in it and then got resurrected as DeRay. It's hard to remember. My brain only contains so much space for Hyperion nonsense. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, you know, I'm going to be really exercising <laughs> that Hyperion space in your brain, cramming it real full. It's really rough. Anyway, the story of this Pope and Anti-Pope, which I really want to imagine, like, a Pope and Anti-Pope, if they met, they'd, like, annihilate, like, <laughs> matter and antimatter. Hilarious. Uh, is contained in the Cantos, which is a forbidden text by the church, but everyone reads it at one point or another anyway, because, of course, they do. Yeah, of course. So, basically, Duray Tellard had sought to have humanity move forward and evolve towards the Godhead. But when Hoyt took over, he did a 180. He was all like, nope, all that stuff, anti-Pope stuff. We're in a new direction. And while the Cantos told of the Shrike giving Hoyt and DeRay the cruciform, the official church story is that the Shrike is a representation of Satan, because of course he is, and had nothing to do with the cruciform, but instead acted as a tempter to DeRay and Hoyt, to which DeRay succumbed, but Hoyt did not. 
So basically, the official church history has DeRay trying to betray the church for excommunicating him, and Hoyt not returning to Hyperion to seek death and freedom from the cruciform, but rather to bravely face down the Shrike and then discovering the holiness of the cruciform and his revelation from God of how the resurrection process could be guided and controlled, which was still a mystery to all those but the highest echelons of the church. So Hoyt's to blame for everything, being yeah, the way it is currently. Yeah, basically Hoyt and the church have spun this whole story about how he bravely faced down the Shrike, brought the holiness of the cruciform to the people, and through some divine inspiration has discovered the means to make the resurrection process safe and profitable. Weird. Yeah. I feel Just like weird. I'm more... Or no, I'm trying, I was trying... There's a lot. I was trying to think of what to say. Yeah, I felt you had more to say there, but we were, like, stymied. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I don't know. Why did they put... Why did they make Dre Pope knowing that he was probably going to lean that way to begin with. Well, I'm sure they didn't know that at the point when he became Pope. But also, like, I, this is a question I had to, I guess what happened was when Pope DeRay died, since he got resurrected as Hoyt, like, well, same body or close enough, so I guess the popitude passes through the resurrection to you now. You're, you're automatically Pope, I guess. Which is crazy. Insane. Absolutely insane. But it does kind of follow the resurrection stories of, of the their faith, so I guess it kind of fits. I don't know. Wasn't there something in the previous books where they somebody asked if Hoyt was going to end up being Pope once Duray died, and they were like, no? I don't remember if that was a question that was asked or not, but Pop I guess it was. line, but apparently Maybe. is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't, if that was something that was said, Danielle, I guess it didn't come true. Okay. I might be misremembering it. I mean, I could be too, Danielle. Adding things to the Hyperion plot. <laughs> Like, it really needs more. <laughs> anyway, through nepotism, I guess is the best way to describe it. <laughs> sort of. Hoyt is now Pope. Cruciformism. I guess. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, either way, it's like, it, it, like, it makes sense in a way. Like, it's the same person, but it's also not the same person. Yeah, they'd have, like, a, as seen, they have completely different beliefs. And different DNA and different cruciform. I don't know. It's all weird. Wouldn't that be weird? Like, your father, DeRay's got this whole thing going on. Everybody's going with it. He dies. And then the next guy comes along. It's Hoyt. You're like, well, I guess you're Pope now. And he's like, shifting directions. <laughs> well, it's alluded to that that Pope Tellard, you know, DeRay, died in an accident. So maybe the church wasn't really going with him. And they're like, oh, great. Now we have someone else you can put on there as a puppet. <laughs> Perfect. Or maybe like, oh, this guy's going a different direction. We'll go with him. So unclear at this point what really happened to Tellard slash Duray. So after the mass, Desoya is brought to a garden where he is met by Cardinal Lorduzami, which is the Vatican Secretary of State and basically the second most powerful person in the church. They're also joined by Fleet Admiral William Lee Maruzian. Maruzian? I don't know. I'm just, this book, this episode has <laughs> a lot of weird names, Danielle, so buckle up. Just throw them out there. Who's going to correct us? <laughs> yeah, no one's going to correct. Well, there will be someone who will correct us, Danielle, but I don't care. Feel free to email Sam. No, yeah, I'll, I'll quickly delete those emails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they explain that DeSoya has been chosen for a special mission. Why DeSoya? Don't ask questions. Because why not? They yeah. seem to just pick people at random for all these missions anyway. Kinda. So they pull out a hollow cube and it lights up with the face of a child, a girl around 11 years old. They don't know her name for sure, though they know she last called herself Aenea. And they know her as the daughter of Braun Lamia, who had an unholy relationship with a cybrid who fathered the child. <laughs> unholy. Um, is she still a child yeah. or is she coming out an adult? As far as they know, she's still a child. Oh, okay. Like, like she stepped through, to her perspective... There is no difference. Like, you step through and step down immediately. Like, the okay. portal is, like, stepping through a doorway and coming out 200 years later. Sure. I just wasn't sure if she aged, you know, like, if, yeah. I don't know. What, what might, happened again, in the alternate reality? <laughs> very possible, Danielle, but not according <laughs> to their belief at this point that they don't think she is aged. Everyone <laughs> is under the assumption she is not aged. <laughs> Surprise. She's lady. Oh, whoa, whoa, she's lady. <laughs> Time traveling lady. Yeah, that. <laughs> don't don't copyright strike us. <laughs> You're allowed to do them if you're making fun of them. It's fine. Okay, great. I'll tell the lawyers that. <laughs> it's true. It is true. But, you know, the MPAA doesn't care. They're litigious. <laughs> Wrongly so. Anyway, the point is the church thinks – oh, this is great. Oh, the church thinks that while gestating, the fetus, baby, whatever, communicated with the key cyber personality that was in Braun Schron loop. So they were just like chatting away while she was developing in the womb. I mean, sure. Why not? 
And that, that she was also in touch with the techno core through the Keats hybrid, like a baby cyber puke, basically. <laughs> Are uh, fetuses usually capable of full comprehensive thought? Is that a thing? I mean, maybe magic cybrid messiah fetuses are, Daniel. <laughs> That's fair. This is all bonkers, but they're like, yeah, that is definitely what happened. And now the church sees the Technocore as evil incarnate. And so they're like, oh, this girl is a problem. And this all shocks Desoya, of course. Of course. So they go on to explain that the child is dangerous and could destroy the church, having been programmed for evil by those dastardly AIs in the Technocore. And she also has, like, magic powers of some kind that are ill-defined. That's so he can just do whatever he wants later. So she is described as a virus that could spread through humanity, destroying the faith. They explain about her emerging from the time tombs, the Pax having miscaptured her before she entered them by mere days. Like, they tried to capture her, but she went into the time tomb days before they got to her. And now they're just waiting, been waiting for 200 years for her to come back out. How come? Why do they know when she's coming out again? I don't know. <laughs> they just do. The same way Martin does. Nothing no one ever knows. makes sense in these books. <laughs> You're not going to like the answers when we get to them, I'm sure. <laughs> so they task Desoya with capturing and returning the child unharmed to the Vatican, who will take it from there. <laughs> and harm her. <laughs> Desoya is like, uh, is this, is she going to be okay? But like, don't worry. They tell him to super duper trust us. We won't hurt her. But we'll only save her soul. It's going to be totally fine. He can We're trust exercise us. exercise her. It'll be great. The Holy See wants no harm to come to her. Just to, <laughs> you know, cure her of the techno core and bring her around our way of thinking. Nothing yeah. sinister about that. Exorcism. Sure, sure. That's exactly sure. what you're describing. <laughs> it's going to be something, Danielle. I'm not sure if they describe it as exorcism, but maybe. Like future exorcism. However yeah. that, whatever Futuricism. that is. <laughs> Futuricism. Ex-futuricism? Perfect. So DeSoya is to be given complete command and papal authority and given a brand new type of archangel ship equipped with six resurrection beds, including a child-sized one, presumably, that are fully automated. So no resurrection priest necessary to bring them back around. And also lots of weapons. The most advanced ship ever. So they have to, in order to be on those ships, they need a cruciform, right? Otherwise, yes, they won't exactly resurrect. Right. Does yeah. she, she have a cruciform on her? Not yet, but that's part of the plan. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Throw it at her and then grab her. <laughs> Kinda. We'll get to that. Starfish her face. <laughs> So DeSoy is not thrilled with dying again because it's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> Go figure. They expect him to succeed in capturing her when she emerges on Hyperion, but if not, he's to pursue her relentlessly wherever he goes, even beyond the reach of the Pax, until he has her. This is like priority numero uno in the church. Is he going to like change sides or fall in love with her or something weird? I don't know, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like it's going that direction. I don't think he falls in love with her. Because she's know. a child. You, but we don't know that for sure, Sam. <laughs> That's true. And this book would totally have a thing where they're not together when he's like, when she's a kid, but then she grows up and it's fine. <laughs> Danielle, you're going to love about 20 minutes from now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already mad. Whatever it is, I don't like it. No, I don't like it either, Danielle. We'll get to, I have things to say. <laughs> so as he leaves, he notices sitting on another bench in the shadows is another figure. It's the Pope! Who observed the entire conversation. So he's in on it. I wish I liked this Pope. But I'm not sure I do. He seems sinister. Why did the Shrike allow Duray, who, like, supported him to die, and then Hoyt to come back? Because of reasons. Remember, <laughs> who's the Shrike working for, Danielle? Ah, uh, himself. <laughs> we don't know. But also, Duray didn't really support the Shrike. If, the, if we assume, for a moment, the Shrike is an entity of the machine UI. Sure. Pope Tellard was trying to promote humanity toward their own godhead in opposition to the machine godhead, or UI. Okay. And we don't know what Pope Julius is up to here, but... It seems like he's regressing humanity away from that. So maybe that's serving the interests of the... I don't know, Danielle. But I'm just speculating here. Okay. The big DJ in the sky. Yeah, the big DJ in the sky. The big <laughs> UI, DJ UI. To have just nothing but letters. Back to Endymion. Rawl and Abednego are receiving a tour of the ship from a hologram of Martin. They finish up and they sit in the living room and discuss the plan for rescuing Aenea. Rawl is skeptical that he even get close to her. Like, he's like, I'm not even going to get into the valley. They're going to blast me from space, much less even get her out again. Though once they get her aboard the ship, it's faster than the pack ships, generally. And as long as they have like a five or ten minute head start, they're golden. Mm -hmm. Rawl is like, they'll just blow the ship up before we get close. And Martin is all, you're not using the ship. And Abednego hands him a cylinder and he unrolls the cylinder to reveal... Guess what he reveals, Danielle? You're going to love it. 
The hockey man. Yes, the hockey man. Yes, I'm so good. That was a good guess. Good job. Yeah, yeah. So we, we of course, get the entire history of the hockey man again. And I'm going to share it again because every time this story is told, it changes and becomes more insane. Like, it, like you tell every time it's told, like, new details are added and they're bonkers. All right. So what do you remember about the origin of the hockey man? Um, it's from Aladdin. No, I have no idea, Sam. <laughs> something right. about I don't know. So from, they had something there for a moment. From but the of course, grandma? Was it from the grandma? Yeah, well, that's who had it and passed it to. But the All original right. person who made the hockey man, this was the first one ever made. They were invented by a lepidopterist slash EM systems genius. Yeah, that. Who also invented the hawking drive, it seems, which great, right. sure, really important guy. So anyway, he made the match when he was in his 70s to try to impress his teenage niece whom he had fallen madly in love with. No, that's gross. Yeah. For many reasons. <laughs> yeah, super gross. But quote, after a passionate interlude, the teenager had spurned the old man who then later killed himself afterwards. So Good wild. Her, but also, ew. <laughs> Insane. I don't know why the book keeps insisting on bringing the story back up again and again. It is gross and bonkers. Anyway, it's a mystery as to why the mat works on Hyperion, which doesn't have an EM field that supports EM vehicles. Barton says it's probably because it's small enough that it doesn't matter. It can do it. It doesn't need to, like, like big ships are too heavy to work on the weak field the planet has. But also, it's been enhanced by the ousters, because apparently Martin spent some time with them. This is the only Hawking mat, right? Well, no. There, several have been made, but this is like the only one in the book. Right. They're very rare. So the ousters have enhanced the Hawking mat to have a longer battery life and to fly at over 300 kilometers per hour. So real speedy. <laughs> Just hang on and hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. So Rawl is all like, uh, so what? The Swiss Guard will annihilate us in the hockey mat, which has no weapons and no defensive capabilities. So, like, unless there's something you're not telling me, we're screwed. And Martin replies, of course there is something I'm not telling you. And, like, why is this being dragged out? Just tell him. <laughs> anyway, we never learned the plan because Raw has to go practice flying the thing. Way more important than learning the actual plan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Martin's all, like, coy about everything and <laughs> takes, like, dozens of pages to cover even that basic thing I told you. It'd be it's funny if he died in the interim. And it was right. like, well, uh, we'll win. <laughs> he died while Martin dies. Like, oh, I guess I know what the plan is. <laughs> All right, so we cut to two hours before Aenea is supposed to emerge. A crazy sandstorm is building in the valley of the Time Tombs, and Desoya is there overseeing things. The Swiss Guard have been busy intercepting and destroying several drones that have been approaching the valley. As distractions? Decoys? I don't know. It's unclear who they are or what they're doing, but we presume the drones are coming from Martin. Desoya goes over the plan again. When the child emerges, she'll be immediately sedated and then fitted with the cruciform so that she can be resurrected after transport in the Archangel ship. Now named the Raphael by Desoya himself. How dare they destroy dare the they names what? of Ninja Turtles. <laughs> right. That's the original <laughs> person is the Ninja Turtle Raphael. He should have named it the Donatello. <laughs> which was the one that did machines. That would be a better name, actually. I don't recall, Sam. Hmm. I have, to go through, I have to go through the whole song in my head. And I don't have time for that. We'll get back to it. <laughs> Listen, I love the Ninja Turtles, but for the life of me, I can't keep them barred. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so Desoya, that's the plan. Capture her, sedate her, give her cruciform, resurrect her later when she's safe in Vatican hands. Perfect. No notes. <laughs> no notes. Desoya is still a little skeptical that a child could be a threat to the pack slash church, and he seems like genuinely kind hearted and like concerned about her well-being, but he has his orders, so oh well. <laughs> So we cut back to Raw preparing to leave. So I guess we're just jumping back in time because this is way before the two hours we just jumped to. So this book is doing that thing where it just jumps around in time again. Hate so that. get used to it. <laughs> yep. So he packs a bunch of survival stuff, which I will not list like a knife. But the best part is he brings, quote, a soft tricorn cap that would fold away into a vest pocket when I did not need it. Which, what? <laughs> what has anyone ever needed a tricorn cap? Uh, all the time, Sam. <laughs> Are they superior in survival, like, scenarios in a way that I do not understand to other hats of any other kind? <laughs> no, but it has its own song. What is that song, Danielle? Sing it for us. My hat, it has three corners. Three corners has my hat. That's not a song. Three corners, it would not be my hat. <laughs> that's not a singing it, Danielle. That's chanting. <laughs> well, that's the song. Great. The point is, Danielle, if they were so good at survival hats, you'd think more like crazy survivalists would be in those kind of hats, which would be way funnier. <laughs> 
maybe he just wants to look cool while he's like heroing. Yeah, that must be it. He also then has a breakfast of, quote, fried meats, fruit, meal patties with syrup, which is just fancy talk for space pancakes. <laughs> they say pancakes? <laughs> space pancakes. <laughs> they didn't want to say space pancakes, so they said meal patties, which is way less appetizing. <laughs> like, mmm, meal patties. No, I'll have the space pancakes, please. <laughs> they needed a better PR team. Right. So Rawl asks Martin if he'll tell him about the miracle that will allow him to rescue Aenea, and Martin just like, no, trust me on this. Just you'll be fine. <laughs> I'm like, freaking tell him. Why don't you just tell him? What's the point of not telling him? You know what? Knowing him, I think he's probably just gonna kick out of not telling him. Probably. He's probably having a lot of fun with that. Because you're probably right, because instead of telling him, Martin just recites some poetry and sends the roll <laughs> off on his way. <laughs> See, told you. Was it Keats? I have no idea. I didn't I didn't like pay that close attention. <laughs> Gee, Sam. So Rawl takes off on the hockey mat and flies to the entrance of the labyrinth, the same entrance that Father Hoyt went to to receive the cruciform from the Shrike. <laughs> well, Father Hoyt and Father Durea, I guess. <laughs> but neither the Shrike or the cruciforms are there, having the latter having all been harvested by the church. Creepy. So Rawl sets them out on autopilot, which follows a pre-programmed route Martin had mapped out over the course of a few months, hundreds of years ago. Rawl hopes it's still accurate, otherwise he's turning into pace when he slams to a wall in total darkness. <laughs> the end. The end. At 15 minutes to Aenea popping out, DeSoya is standing at the entrance to the Sphinx. The sandstorm is raging around him. He requests that a certain squad, led by Sergeant Gregorius, join him and watch his back. At one minute to emergence, all the tombs start to show activity. All the tombs are opening. Uh-oh. Are there multiple Aeneas? <laughs> We're gonna find out. It's like that Spider-Man. Like, million Spider-Man. This is welcome to the multiverse. Dan Simmons did it first. <laughs> DeSoya lifts his visor, determined the first thing the child will see will be a human face, not a helmet. The door to the Sphinx swings inward. That's nice of him since he's going to kill her and then take her to not a kill church. Her. Well, kill her temporarily. Resurrect her. <laughs> the doors to the Sphinx swing inwards and the, and the form of a small child appears. DeSoya approaches her and tells her, don't worry. But she only looks at him sadly as another figure is seen behind her in the gloom. And then the head of the doctor with the sedative is sliced off by a massive, fast-moving shape. Does he come with the Shrike? Oh, the Shrike is there, baby! And DJ Shrike the side in the of house! <laughs> Yay! Boots and cats, boots and cats, boots and cats. Boots Time and to cats. drop some beat in a sick sandstorm. Boots and cats, boots and cats, boots and cats, boots and cats. Did you say boots and cats or boots and pants? Um, I said both, but I was going with okay. cats today. Okay. Primarily. Great. Perfect. Do you have any other... Do you actually want to drop any lyrics for you, those sick beats? No. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, everybody. I tried. <laughs> DeSoya rushes forward to lunge for Aenea, but collides with the Shrike and is badly hurt, spikes and possibly puncturing his combat armor. He hears Aenea cry, No! Stop! I command you! Which has about as much effect on the Shrike as you'd expect. <laughs> oh, I was hoping that she had some sway over him for some reason. Nah, not really. I mean, maybe she does later, or I don't know. But at this point, the Shrike is just ignoring her. <laughs> It'd be pretty funny if this little 12-year-old could stop the Shrike. Right? So the Shrike vanishes, and Aenea comes up to the mortally wounded DeSoya and whispers to him, It will be all right. And he's suddenly suffused with well-being and joy and begins to weep. So that's like her powers, I guess, is to like make him feel so happy. But he's got a cruciform, right? So Yeah, yeah. he's not like actually in mortal peril in that sense. Aenea vanishes and Sergeant Gregorius comes and hauls the soya off. And the panic screams over the comms growing louder as many other people, like all the, the Swiss Guard, completely turn to chaos. Well, I feel bad for them, but I don't. Yeah, right? So back to Rawl, who's been cruising through the labyrinth for hours, less a few brief stops to deal with his claustrophobia and vomit a little bit. What a good hero. What a great hero. He finally pops out the third cave tomb and into the massive sandstorm. He flies almost blind, seeing dark forms engaging in battle and Swiss Guard running for their lives, which astonishes him. Because, like, this is Swiss Guard. This is crazy. Nothing could harm them. Except the Shrike. No one tops DJ Shrike! He has a couple of close calls as wild shots go over and under him before crash landing just in front of the Shrike, which vanishes yet again. Just making appearances, I guess. <laughs> just having fun. He's like, I haven't been out in 200 years, suckers. <laughs> I have so many new playlists to show you. He's like, stabby, 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 stabby. 
There are some massive explosions as large flying vehicles crash and blow up. In the glow of fireballs, he sees the strike with a small figure standing next to it, striking the strike with her tiny fists. And then he gets back on the mat and races towards them. Is he going to take the Shrike and Aenea on his hawking mat? Because that'd be super fun. And they do a road trip. <laughs> I mean, that kind of happens later, I think. If I, again, I've been so, I don't remember specifically, but I do think, and this is not a spoiler because it's on the cover of the book, that the Shrike joins them for some shenanigans. Excellent. I want them to all ride the hawking mat together. So DeSoya, meanwhile, is struggling to maintain consciousness as he's hauled into a scarab armored fighting vehicle by the sergeant. His leg is all but severed, and then he says... They have to find the girl, but the sergeant just like goes, yeah, we'll do that, and ignores him while they plan to lift off and get him to the hospital ship in orbit. Apparently, it's real bad. Some of their spaceships have been attacked somehow. Most of the Swiss Guard are dead or fleeing, and then finally DeSoya passes out. Is this not like we get the girl by any means necessary? Is that, like, not the operation? Because you think they'd just have to keep going until they were all dead. That is the plan that DeSoya had, but apparently the Swiss Guard are not on board with that. No, well, they should be better run, I guess. <laughs> I, that's what I think. I think this is largely a secret mission, and then DeSoya was the one who's like, your new mission is to get Aenea. They're not really, like, listening to him, because even though he has the people authority, he is still, like, just some captain, not, like, their commander and all that kind of stuff. It's like some weird politics. Right, I'm sure. Anyway, back to Raw. As he approaches, he finds only Aenea standing there, and she looks pissed. Well, yeah, she almost got kidnapped. Put cruciform on her. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she's pissed about that. She recognizes him, or the hockey mat, not clear, and he yells at her to get on. She does, after expressing her anger at the Shrike, and they zoom off towards Keep Kronos, where a Bedek should be waiting for the ship. <laughs> He's like, Shrike. We have talked about this. <laughs> she's no, she's she like literally goes, damn him, you know, damn. I told, I thought I told him not to do that or something like that. <laughs> we talked about this. We had anger management courses. We had all thing. It's been two hundred years. <laughs> I thought we were on the same page, but you just went off script immediately. So Rawl introduces himself, and Aenea is not surprised in the least to buy him, and states that, oh, Uncle Martin sent you. And here I should point out, it's more clear in the text. That Ania is kind of creepy. She's one of those children that talks and acts exactly like an adult. Like oh, that I was already, I already figured that out. That was yeah. like immediately a given. Yeah, she is basically an adult brain or almost adult brain or adult kind of brain, like not a child brain, but in a child's body. Any children that know things are always creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's one of those like, oh, she clearly is omnipotent. Think the childlike empress or or the Paul Atreides younger sister kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they get to the keep. All the Swiss guard that were there are dead. And Nia merely says, damn him again at the sight. They fly to the open arc of the ship and zoom off. In space, the Soya wakes up on the hospital ship. He was out for 40 minutes. So good job, him. He did excellent work. 100% did what he got, went there to do. I mean, to be fair, the Shrike is always going to win. You're not going to win against the Shrike. They want to perform surgery on him, but he demands to talk to the captain of the ship first, as well as Sergeant Gregorius. Things went badly. The captain has given a report about how they're gathering the enormous amount of the dead people for resurrection and doing their best to save those still alive. DeSoya learns that the girl escaped on a ship that's currently making a run to spin out to C-plus translation. They have no idea who or what they were fighting that could have done all of this damage to them and their ships. All the captain knows is that thousands of armored things appeared everywhere at the same time, and then in five minutes, they were defeated. Man, if only they believed in fables. Well, Gregorius steps in, interrupt the captain and say, it was just one thing. It was the Shrike. And he explains that from his perspective on the battlefield, he saw just one Shrike do a ton of damage and disappear in 30 seconds. Like, it only appeared to be everywhere at once because it was moving so quickly. And the rest of the damage was done by the panicked pack shooting each other on accident in the chaos. <laughs> so, like, the Shrike appeared, did a bunch of terrible things, a bunch of people died, panic ensues, then it left, and the panic continued, and they all, like, were friendly firing each other. I mean, did it kill that many people? Maybe it was just pulling pranks all over and then everybody was mad and started shooting each other. I think other. what it was doing was like, hey, do you want to hear my mixtape? And <laughs> hey, it's like, oh, I was like dying in panic. <laughs> He's like, this never works for me. I just want to be famous. So DeSoya orders that one of the remaining ships be sent out immediately to follow the escaping ship and like track where it translates so they can follow it later and to follow it through C plus translation and no matter what it takes, the ends of the galaxy if necessary. 
He then orders that he not be operated on because he's about to be murdered anyway by his own ship. So what's the point? That's fair. And instead that he, Gregorius, and the two remaining squad mates, the two surviving squad mates Gregorius has, all be brought to the Raphael. So the next chapter starts with a little narration by Raw writing that orbital execution chamber. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. The, the framing device presumably this whole story is written under. <laughs> so he says he thought it would be difficult to remember Ania as a child since he has so many memories of her many years later. Like the first time they had sex in Zero G. See, I knew he'd like, he was into her. <laughs> Somebody well, was going to be into Ania. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing. <laughs> anyway, they're all on the ship. Raw and Ania are covered in dirt from the sandstorm. The packs have not followed them yet because they're too busy dealing with the chaos. And Raw is confused. And Ania says, it's the Shrike. Mother and I had hoped it would not happen like that, but it did. I am so sorry. How old's Raul? Raul's like early to mid-twenties. Okay. What? Nothing. <laughs> You're still put off by that whole thing. It's about to get worse. <laughs> I didn't expect it to get better. Uh, she recognized Endymion's name since it's like the poem her father wrote. Which, I guess, she identifies her father as Keats, but the real Keats wrote the poem, not the cybrid Keats. So I don't think that really counts. I think she's, like, <laughs> just assuming things there. So she's pleased to learn Martin is still alive, or as she says, Uncle Martin, and is glad she arrived in the year she expected. When Raul mentions the pact and how they control everything, Ania responds, We thought it might go that way. My dreams got that right, too. So... There's a strong possibility that everything that's been planned out is based on the dreams Ania has been having. Of a 12-year-old girl. Sweet. A prophetic 12-year-old messiah child. <laughs> That'd be terrible. What a terrible lot in life. Right? Then Ania says she wants the ship to go to the nearest inhabited world, which is Parvati. And then she asks what the closest web world, which is Renaissance Vector, which is... Uh, in total, five or six months of time dead away. So she's changed her mind about going to the ousters. Instead, she plans to go to Pravati, but first to jump through Renaissance Vector to try to throw off their pursuers. Even though they're not in pursuit now, quote, they will be in a few hours, then for the rest of my life. Aw, poor baby. Poor baby, pursued by the pack for the rest of her life. Then Aeneas decides to take a shower and grins at Rollin says, You should shower too, friend. Someday we'll take it together. But right now, I think you should use the one of the fugue deck. Ew. Which, what? <laughs> Super gross. Some Trump will tell you, hey, we're going to shower together someday. But right now, I'm going to shower alone. Why don't authors age people up when their age doesn't really matter? <laughs> I don't know if it does matter or not, but it doesn't feel like it does. And you're right. She should just come out of the sphinx. Like, I swear, when I started reading this book, I was like, oh, yeah, she she goes in as 12 and she emerges, surprise, as a woman who's Rawls age. I remember right. they hook up. Which would make sense. <laughs> the book did not go that route. <laughs> I think I had invented that memory because I'm like, that has to be what happened. <laughs> Everything else is too gross. <laughs> Maybe they won't be together until she's older. <laughs> I mean, I know that happens. He does not, like, hook up with a 12-year-old. <laughs> Hope not, but I'm hoping she's at least over 18 by the time that happens. Yeah, I do not remember the mechanism by which she ages up, and they are at least in a semi-reasonable relationship. But it still feels creepy because, like, again, it's like when people grow up with somebody, like, oh, I was, you know, eight and they were 19, and then we both grew up and then we got together. It still feels weird in a way, you know, even though it's like nothing's technically wrong with it. Potentially. But I guess Ania isn't a normal 12-year-old. She's like basically an adult, but just in a child's body. And that also feels gross. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Choices. Choices you made. There's a lot about this that it gives just me the squick factor to use a word that is weird. <laughs> anyway, as they're about to jump to C-plus translation after the shower, Aenea suggests they watch the whole show from the ship's balcony, which of course the ship has a balcony. Yeah. Well, don't all ships? <laughs> yeah. So the whole thing, piano and included, all extends out into space, protected by the ship's you know, containment field. And then Ania starts to play the piano because apparently everyone in the future knows how to play the piano, Danielle. Well, it's a super easy skill, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, super easy. <laughs> anyway, there's a very trippy scene where like... As they go to C+, Rawls sees all these colors, and the colors shrink to pinpoints of light, and then he stares into this weird void that gives him this a tremendous sense of, like, smallness and vertigo, and is this is why people are- high? No, this is just the effect of C plus translation. Sure, which okay. Is why people, the, the Hawking drive effect, which is why people generally go into cryogenic stasis fugue during this, but also because it'd be really boring. Mm -hmm. But apparently this ship also has- 
been enhanced by the ousters to mitigate those effects. And then the ship's like, oh, I should turn those on. And it turns on those effects. And he's like, totally fine now. Oh, good. He's worried for a minute. Not sure why that whole trippy scene was in there, but there it is. Because Dan Simmons doesn't leave anything out if he can Nothing. help it. There is, there is no person that says, I should cut that out. Nope. It all goes in, baby. <laughs> So they go back inside, discuss how they can get through the Parvati system and onto Renaissance Vector without being captured. And Rawls are like, oh, it's fine. We have a head start on them. Their nearest ship is going to be hours behind us. So we'll just, you know, translate from one to the other. But Ania has an intuition that they'll be there ahead of them waiting for them somehow. And this is because Rawls doesn't know about the Archangel ships and how they can get places instantly, basically. Right. So Ania asks Rawls to fill her around the press. He's like, I've been gone for 200 years. They only felt like a moment to me, but tell me about everything. So he does. And when he mentions how they changed the name of Hyperion's capital from Keats to St. Joseph, she laughs like, yeah, father would have liked that. He'd be cool with that. <laughs> she notes how technology seems stuck for the last few hundred years. Like it hasn't changed a lot since when she left. And Roland notes how the PAX is partly responsible since they outlawed AIs and focus more on spiritual development than technological development, which makes sense. It does. But also with people becoming immortal, A, there are now population controls in place. So the answer to that question, but also since people are living, you know, longer, they don't want things to change. So basically like, oh, I want things to stay the same, just like they were in my day. They're basically just like all old people, but now they last forever instead, (laughs) which is a total dystopia. Yeah. (laughs) It feels like Congress kind of. (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything. I mean, I had to. So we cut now to Father Captain DeSoya. I don't think they ever came up with a plan that we get to learn about. We learn about their plan later, presumably. So we cut to Father Captain DeSoya and his crew. They wake up in the Pravati system following resurrection four days later. They track the girl's ship as it made the C-plus translations. They knew, like, where it was going, and they and so they got ahead of it. And now they have a few months to prepare before the ship arrives because of the time debt. Mm-hmm. Ooh, here comes some good names, Danielle. The remaining members of Gregorius's squad are... Corporal Bassan Key and Lancer Aranwal Gaspa KT Rettig. <laughs> Did he just like type letters into the keyboard? Hope for the best. <laughs> it feels like it. I don't know. <laughs> They're all recovering from resurrection and start to make plans. While Pravati is in is part of the Pax, it's mostly a Hindu planet, and so they don't really expect to get much cooperation from the populace if the girl goes into hiding on the planet. Besides which, the planet is ninety nine percent empty space anyway, so it'd be a really easy place to hide on. Mm-hmm. So DeSoya lays out a plan to sleep in cryo until a week or two before the girl is set to arrive. And then when the ship arrives, they're going to rush close to it before it can use any weapons that the ship might have. And throw a cruciform on her face. Yeah, exactly right. They're going to like go, surprise, cruciform! Here you go, psych! And, no. and then Gregorius and his squad will basically board the ship and capture the girl, trying not to kill anyone, DeSoya says, but only doing so if necessary. Rectig then asks, hey... What if the thing between them and the girls like the Shrike? You know, how are we going to do about that? And Gregorius smiles and says, I think we can bring a few surprises for it. Which feels to me like he needs a dehybridifier. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. Didn't he just yeah. see the Shrike kill like a zillion people in 30 seconds? Yeah. It's like, I got to look like, yeah, the Shrike just like wiped out ships and people and we were like everywhere and all at once. But like, I can handle it. <laughs> We just weren't prepared. We just weren't prepared last time. We'll be prepared this time. I swear, this book makes a continuing case for the need for a deeper (laughs) defier. I do think there's a need for that. No better advertisement than this series. You can uh, support that at patreon.com slash bookerdorts. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap it up there, Danielle, with them all having their plans. And we'll see how they pan out next time. <laughs> oh, wild. Yeah, absolutely insane. Deebridifiers, wave of the future. Wave of the present, hopefully. <laughs> well, so there you go. Part two of Endymion. We're in the thick of it now, and it's getting weirder. <laughs> And I will absolutely try my best to remember it next time. That's okay, Danielle. This episode was a lot more insane. The first one was just all like establishment stuff, like background, background, background. Yeah, I think that's why I had a hard time with it because there was no like actual plot. Yeah, that's fair. Like I felt the same way. That that first episode was kind of like nothing but establishment. But now I feel like we're getting into it and it's feeling like, oof, I don't know where it's going. Like I honestly have no clue. It could go anywhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, you never know with him. All right. Well, I hope you're looking forward to next time because it's going to be wild. I'm so looking forward to next time. It's going to be great. If anyone out there has an explanation for like how everyone knows about things that isn't Aeneas Dreams, I'd love to hear about it. Or can explain to me, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on good <laughs> outros. This, broke has, this book has broke me. <laughs> it's, the, it's the heat, Sam. It's the heat. It's probably the heat and the book and just the exhaustion. See, here I am in a sweater and you're dying. If anyone wants to send us the playlist they think that DJ Shrek put together during his 200-year trip through the Time Tombs, we would love to hear those playlists. <laughs> it's an updated version of the playlist I already sent you. <laughs> It could very well be. We have no idea. But if you have your own, you can send them to us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. And as Danielle mentioned, if you want to help us build that dehybridifier, which is desperately needed, you can do so at patreon.com slash bookretorts. Patreon dehybridifiers. That was our best invention. Best idea we've ever had, Danielle, yeah. so far. Except maybe I mean, the, guard, the mall guard I was say, dogs. What <laughs> was the last one? Weirwolves? The weirwolf guard dogs. Yeah, the guard dogs are just dog, like the, the all guard <laughs> dog guard crew. <laughs> that's like a mall. great idea. Yeah, for malls. <laughs> I still think that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> Two great ideas, same great taste or something. Oh, Hardy Boys, we love you. Hardy Boys and and Hyperion, the same, basically. <laughs> the same. We've already established that everything's the same as Hyperion. Pretty much. All right, well, until next time, really don't underestimate the strike. Yeah, don't do it. Well, until then, bye. Take care, everybody. is just a strike <laughs> i mean kind of weaker because it gets defeated weaker and well like it looks like the predator but with spikes and forearms and forearms and more like lovecraftian horror you can't see my arms but they were waving i was Thank imagining you, having forearms <laughs> i always appreciate when you describe to me the gestures you were making <laughs> that's because i sometimes realize i'm like doing weird things and i was like nobody can see me <laughs> It's a real pity we don't have a video recording for the uh, <laughs> listeners so we can do it for this podcast. Of me waving my arms like I have four of them. Or just in general. I'm sure that you do all sorts of weird expressions <laughs> that would make great uh, video fodder. You see me like close my eyes and put my hands on my forehead and I'm like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>